Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and join me from DC's Supreme Court reporter, Jimmy Hoover. Jimmy, how's it going? It's going great. Guess what? We have SCOTUS retirement news. What? <laughs> well, not the kind that maybe a lot of you were anticipating. Uh, but after 38 years of working at the Supreme Court, public information officer Kathy Arberg, she's like the head honcho spokeswoman at the court, has been for years. She is retiring on July 3rd. She started working at Jimmy, the court. Jimmy, that was a big tease. <laughs> Sorry. <not> cool. <laughs> I had to do it. I, it's like it's a constant joke in the uh, SCOTUS press room like every year when uh, on the last day, Chief Justice Roberts will say, and we have some retirements. And then he goes through some of the clerk staff and everyone kind of breathes a big sigh of relief. But in this case, uh, Arberg, as I said, uh, retiring on July 3rd, she started working at the court as an assistant public information officer in 1982 before becoming the public information officer in 99, 22 years ago. So she's been at the court for like longer than any, I think, Supreme Court justice in history. Pretty impressive there. Um, Chief that justice, is impressive. Yeah. Chief Justice Roberts wished her well in retirement, but he said he, he uh, the, the justices will miss her presence immensely. I think a lot of the journalists feel the same way, having worked with her over the years. But um, it's a pretty mild week at the Supreme Court, I would say. There were three decisions. Uh, we're going to jump into those. And one with kind of an interesting lineup. Wait, wait, wait. Before we get into that, though, uh, there was also some interesting orders this week. Ah, true. Okay. So let's go to the orders first. Yeah. So on Monday, uh, the court granted uh, another case for next term. This uh, bit of an interesting copyright dispute involving H&M and Unicolor. Um, Essentially, Unicolor's going after H&M for allegedly infringing on its geometric pattern on jackets, which I'm sure are very stylish. Um, (laughs) But what's interesting about this case is that Unicolor had originally won in a lower court, um, but then the Ninth Circuit essentially like wiped it clean saying, wait, there's some technical errors with their registration of the copyright. And, you know, should this basically, you know, not give them the legs to stand on for the copyright dispute. And now the Supreme Court's going to weigh in whether, you know, technical registration errors are enough to kind of wipe out the bigger merit issues in a case like this. Yeah, I think a $1 million judgment in this case against H&M. Interesting, we'll be keeping an eye on for next term. But actually, the big news, I would say, Natalie, from the orders list on Monday was not the cert grant, but one of the cert denials. So the Supreme Court actually rejected a petition from Johnson and Johnson appealing a 2.1 billion with a B dollar loss in litigation to cancer patients who say they use the company's talc powder products, which allegedly contained asbestos and led to ovarian cancer. Um, Jane Jay had sought a cap on punitive damage, which had long been considered the holy grail of the corporate defense bar. So this was a, a, a petition that a lot of people were keeping their eye on, especially when it came to you know uh, members of the kind of corporate defense bar and the SCOTUS bar that, that practices a lot of corporate liability law. But in this case, Alito and Kavanaugh actually recused um, from the court's decision to reject J&J's petition. Now, as is customary, there was no reason for the denial of cert, and there was no reason even given for um, uh, the recusals here. But it, you got to suspect um, that having only seven justices being able to participate in a case maybe played a role in the court's decision to not take it up. Yeah, I remember these 
these verdicts, and there was actually, I believe, a string of them a few years back, um, just making such a big splash because they were billion dollar verdicts, you know, against right. big, huge corporations, um, a big, huge corporation like J&J. Um, so what was the reaction of the parties? So the plaintiff's lawyers were obviously thrilled that the Supreme Court decided not to review the case, which essentially leaves the judgment in place in favor of the plaintiffs here, uh, 22 ovarian cancer patients and their surviving spouses. Um, among the, you know, obviously in, in that $2.1 billion figure, $1.6 billion were punitive damages. So a lot was on the line here. Um, so they are kind of the lawyers that is they are casting this court's decision not to hear the cases as kind of a broad symbolic victory in favor of the plaintiffs although uh the company j and j noted that the court's decision not to hear a case doesn't necessarily reflect on its merits and said it would continue to press arguments related to due process and personal jurisdiction in further litigation before state and federal courts so that was the big news from the otters list on Monday. Um, there were also two opinions on Monday. One of them was a, an actually an interesting um, immigration ruling. Um, it was yet another unanimous decision. We've seen a string of those recently as the court seems to be clearing up its docket of, you know, rulings that are kind of easily decided upon among the justices. Um, this one was in a pair of consolidated immigration cases um, that are actually a, a bit of a blow to the immigration bar. Uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote the opinion that essentially said the Ninth Circuit had gone too far when it made a rule that said an asylum seeker's testimony must be treated as truthful when there had been no previous explicit finding of adverse credibility. And this this is important because, um, you know, it, it, it gave the asylum seekers testimony uh, a bit more standing against essentially what the board of immigration appeals findings were um so th the supreme court decision on monday essentially overturned the rule saying it doesn't jive with the immigration and nationality acts requirement for appellate courts to accept board of immigration appeals reasonable findings you know as 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 kind of the be all here the cases had involved two asylum seekers whose um, alleged claims of persecution in their home countries had been rejected by the Board of Immigration Appeals. Uh, there was Ming Dei, a Chinese asylum seeker, who said he feared retribution for violating his country's one-child policy, um, and Cesar Alcaraz Enriquez, a Mexican national who sought to remain in the U.S. over fears of being persecuted due to mental illness upon deportation. Um, so the Ninth Circuit had essentially ruled in the favor of these asylum seekers um, based on their testimony and based on the rule that said that their testimony should be treated as fact. Um, the Supreme Court, though, and, and Justice Gorsuch kind of laid out the grounds of how the, some of the facts of their cases can cut both ways, uh, noting some issues the BIA had had uh, brought up with both their cases. Um, and essentially, you know, it's, it's essentially a decision saying, the rules doesn't give enough credence to the BIA in this, in these particular kind of cases. Right. The idea that judges need to, like, I guess in Gorsuch's view, blindly accept the testimony of an asylee as deemed, you know, true, undoubtedly true, even if there are, you know, facts kind of countervailing positions that maybe cast some doubt on the claims of fears of persecutions and things like that, you can see the Supreme Court saying, well, we need to give a little bit more discretion to the judges and that yeah. there's no, I think, magic words to kind of create this blanket cover of truth to some of the words that they're saying in their testimony. Yeah. And and 
it seems that at least a few of the Ninth Circuit judges are are going to uh, kind of embrace this ruling uh, because uh, Justice Gorsuch mentioned that at least 12 members had objected to this judge-made rule in the past. Um, and, and that was part of the reason why they granted certiorari in, in the case originally. Well, moving on to some of the other decisions of the week, um, there was another ruling on Monday in United States versus Cooley involving um, the authority of tribal police to detain non-Indians on public highways on reservations. We're not going to get too deep into that. Instead, I want to focus on just this morning on Thursday, uh, the court handed down a pretty fascinating decision involving federal computer crime law in Van Buren versus United States. So this is the strange alignment <laughs> that I was talking about up top. I don't know that we've ever seen it before. The streak of unanimous decisions ended on basically oh, well, yeah, on it's Thursday. That time of year. <laughs> yeah. Unanimity goes out the window. <laughs> so <clears throat> in a six to three decision, the court says that a former Georgia police sergeant did not, did not violate a federal computer crime law when he used a law enforcement database to look up license plate records in exchange for money. So, you know, what? not, <laughs> not great. <laughs> this isn't behavior that you necessarily want in your police officers. How? But the- Wait, okay. I know we're going to get into how they came to this decision, <laughs> but uh, you said it was a strange lineup. So, so let's talk about that first. Sure. Okay. So um, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, she has the majority opinion for the court um, and she that writes like her second, right? I think it's her second. Yeah, and she, well, yeah. her second majority opinion that is, and she writes um, on behalf of justices, you know, the three liberal justices, Elena Kagan and um, Sonia Sotomayor and Breyer, and uh, also Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch. So that leaves in dissent uh, Justice Thomas, where you'll often find him. Um, Justice Alito, again, where you'll often find him. But this time it was actually Chief Justice Roberts who kind of banded together with the um, oh, Thomas and Alito to to be in dissent here. So going back to your question about how the court came to this decision, I think it's important to point out that this isn't a case about whether it was right or wrong for Van Buren to do this or whether it complied with his, you know, the protocols at his police department where he worked, but rather was it a violation of federal computer crime law when he accepted a deal for money to look up license plate information. Um, Did it violate the 1986 Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which criminalizes conduct where someone, quote, intentionally accesses a computer without authorization or exceeds authorized access. So that last part, it's a crime where someone exceeds authorized access. And that technically, is, he's authorized to access. Exactly. The data, right? I mean, you, you okay. can see you can see where this is going, right? So, so the the, the law actually defines exceeds authorized access. What does it mean uh, when someone intentionally accesses a computer and exceeds authorized access? Well, the law defines it as um, so when you access a computer with authorization and use such access to obtain or alter information in the computer that the accessor is, quote, not entitled so to obtain or alter. So it's kind of a jargony phrase, but what does it mean when they're not so, or not entitled so to obtain? And in particular, a lot of this came down on the particular word so, and uh, basically the gist of it is, and I won't get too much further into detail here, but you hit it right on the head when, uh, just as Amy Coney Barrett says, if you're entitled to do something, 
the police officer here theoretically had access to this information that was not off limits. So it's not as if that this law is necessarily intended to criminalize misuse of these systems, but only the authorization in and of itself. And so she makes kind of a she makes kind of a, an example, right? She says that the government's interpretation of the statute would attach criminal penalties to a breathtaking amount of commonplace act, computer activity. Um, for instance, she says. Um, this would essentially criminalize every violation of a computer use policy, um, and then millions of otherwise law-abiding citizens are criminals. Employers, she says, commonly state that computers and electronic devices can be used only for business purposes. So on the government's reading of the statute, an employee who sends a personal email or reads the news using her work computer has violated the CFAA. So I think Bad news for everyone but me who's never used um, his company laptop to look up anything other than, you know, the work that I have to do during a given day. Forget all of course the not. Never. Uh, Twitter news articles, things like that. <laughs> no. <Nope. laughs> but in any event, yeah, okay. uh, uh, go ahead. So, so this definitely sounds like, you know, basically a black letter of the legislation reading of, you know, decision. But Justice Thomas is in the dissent. Please give me his take. Sure. Well, Justice Thomas is in, uh, he writes a dissent, and it's joined by, like I said, um, Alito and Chief Justice Roberts. And he says, a person is entitled to do something only if he has a right to do it. Van Buren never had a right to use the computer to obtain the specific license plate information. Everyone agrees that he obtained it for personal gain and not for a law enforcement purpose. And without a valid law enforcement purpose, he was forbidden to use the computer to obtain that information. Okay, so I think what's happening here is we have justices who on the surface ostensibly share like a pretty similar judicial philosophy. And that is that they look at the words of the statute and that is what they base their rationale around. Now, I think what you're seeing here is that you have different levels of kind of granularity right, when it comes to just what a textualist is. So someone like Amy Coney Barrett we've seen is pretty technical when it comes to some of these statutory disputes. She goes into, like you said, the letter of the law to a T um, and goes so far as to look up the definition of some of these terms and applying that strict interpretation of what it means, she finds that actually, um, you know, Van Buren here was, was entitled to this information, and so it's not a case where he's kind of trespassing access. And the court goes so far as to say that the the law, really what it's designed to cover is cases where maybe there's a forbidden file or forbidden files in particular parts of the computer. Now, if Van Buren were to have gone that far and opened up something that he didn't actually have any access to in any circumstance, then that would have been swept under the CFAA provision. Whereas Thomas... Roberts and Alito are applying more of the kind of common sense rationale when um, you read a particular statutory phrase and it says that someone who, you know, has access to a computer but exceeds authorized access, that's a clear case of this being what happened here when Van Buren, and I just kind of briefly mentioned the facts of the case, so we've gotten so far into the discussion without actually saying what happened, but basically he had accepted a $5,000 offer from a man um, to search the license plate information for 
a local stripper that the man had suspected was an undercover cop. Now, in reality, this was this all a big a FBI. <laughs> this was all a big FBI sting, and so he's charged federally for the for the uh, like a federal felony violation of the CFAA, um, which is upheld by the uh, the Eleventh Circuit here. And now, finally, we have the Supreme Court adopting a much narrower reading of the decision that. Um, just reading some of the reactions from attorneys this morning is going to make it a lot harder to, you know, criminalize some of the some of the conduct that we talked about earlier. So pretty fascinating. I, I encourage everyone to kind of go out and read the decision themselves. It's pretty interesting. It is really fascinating. I, I wonder if there's going to be a push now to kind of close that loophole somehow in the legislation. I, I have to imagine we'll see we'll see some of that um, pop bubble up potentially. Well, it's certainly possible, but I think that. Um, does it for this week, Natalie, right? Yeah, that that's it for this week. Uh, as that case proves, we are in the uh, non-unanimous uh, <laughs> divided rulings part of June. So I'm sure we're going to be digging into a few more interesting opinions next week as they kind of get through their docket and hopefully close out the term. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Same, Jimmy. We'd like to thank our producer, Stephen Trader, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney, contributing reporters this week, Bill Donahue, Ben Kochman, Sarah Betancourt, and Bill Wickert. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats, and for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks for listening. <laughs>